Hey, what's going on, CNF buddies? You know how I'm always getting on your case for honestly writing or rating the show? Check out what I did in 60 seconds for Writing Class Radio, hosted by Andrea Askowitz and Allison Langer. Here's my review done on an iPhone 5C. Lime green is the C. Titled, Go On, Be a Dick. Quote, WCR is where a beginner and a pro can learn the finer things of craft, e.g. being a likable narrator by becoming the most unsavory person in the story. Do yourself a solid and subscribe, end quote. If you don't subscribe to Writing Class Radio, I might question your intelligence. So, riff. Hey, I like shout-outs. Okay, let's rock and roll. This is the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, the show where I speak with the world's best artists about creating works of nonfiction. I'm Brendan O'Mara. Hey, hey. Leaders in the world of narrative journalism, memoir, essay, doc film, and radio. And I try to share their origins, stories behind the stories, habits, and routines, so you can apply their tools of mastery to your own work. Let's talk to Hope Wabuki this week for episode 87. She's at Hope Wabuki on Twitter and at HopeWabuki.com. That's H-O-P-E-W-A-B-U-K-E. Hope is a poet, though she knows it, and her essay, The Animal in the Yard, is one of six pushcart nominations for Creative Nonfiction Magazine. No, we're not a couple, but our friends tell us we like each other. I had a real hard time cutting this interview down, something I do to all of them, but because she is so wise and illuminating throughout, I left this largely untouched. She talks about the global African diaspora. That's poet language. Starting from the present as a place to explore the past, nonlinear narratives, how our parents escaped genocide in Uganda to start a new life in America, empowering the marginalized, and what it means to be a watcher. So much goodness, it's time I get the hell out of the way and introduce you to the great Hope Wabuki. A lot of research about for my new poetry collection about um, exploring blackness and space and time across history. So looking at figures of blackness that people don't expect, like, um, you know, trumpeters in 15th century Scotland and, you know, or in 8th century Ireland. And people don't realize that that black people are everywhere at all times. So it's pretty exciting to dig through the research and Oh, that's fascinating, and that's for um, for a, a poetry collection or something or, or something else. Yeah, um, my my poetry collection that I just finished that I just started sending out is um, is very tied with the essay. Uh, I guess it's about my family's escape from Idi Amin's genocide in 1976 mm. and the healing and recovery in America, and so that was very personal. Looking at you know very specific story of blackness and you know the the 1970s post-colonial Africa and the kind of genocide and instability that was the legacy of the the, the European colonialism and looking at you know then the, the refugee experience in America and then it made me want to so for my new book it made me want to broaden that question and look at uh because that was just 
that was looking at blackness across uh, uh, space, if you will, these two spaces, but looking at blackness across multiple spaces and multiple times. So looking for or representations in history and literature and and people and and looking at um, uh, cultural events. I have a poem, you know, about Charles Darwin's Origin of the Species and 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 how that relates to blackness and the Venus Hottentot and you know just various conversations, um, whether in America, South America, Asia, Africa, Europe. So it's really interesting. It's very sad because you see over and over this um, this common narrative of violence against blackness, mm. and but you also see the tremendous resilience and ability to build and thrive and survive in these uh, terrifying, horrific conditions. It's exciting. It's also the first poetry collection I've done research for. Um, yeah. So it's exciting to dig into archives and, and so forth. And it's really yeah. cool. Like the um, I. I, I... As someone who's somewhat of a novice of of reading and consuming poetry, it'll be it'll be. I wanted to kind of talk to you about that anyway, but it, especially what you're doing with this latest project of like reported poetry, and I think that's really fascinating. So we can definitely dig into that a bit. Um, but in your current research and in, um, into your to, into your ancestry and the black experience across the across space and time, like what has been the most illuminating for you to discover throughout your research? I think what has been most illuminating is to be able to subvert preconceptions. I don't have preconceptions of blackness because I go into it having had my, my formative life experience and my research interests, which led me to question and think about these questions and ideas. But as I engage through my life, whether with you know, students or fellow academics or, or, or people in, all, in any walk of life, they have a very certain stereotypical understanding of blackness. And, and for a long time in America, it was, it was simply that single story, as Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie says, of blackness as black people were brought here in 1619 as slaves, then in 1865, Civil War, 1960. Ben Jim Crow, the 1960s civil rights, Martin Luther King, Obama, slavery, racism is over the end. And that there is a much larger narrative of blackness growing up in America, um, first in the Midwest and then in Los Angeles as a, as a young girl. That was the only narrative I found. And when we studied blackness for a very short time, probably, you know, two days in February and one day on Martin Luther King Day at that point in time, mm. you know, maybe a couple of pages in the history books. That was the that was the narrative, and I was looking for myself. Where is my experience? I'm living in America, but I am I am immediately from Africa. My family is from Uganda, and we've lived through this genocide, and we've lived through colonialism, and we've lived through having our own independent sovereign nations before that, with this rich cultural history, and you didn't find any of that anywhere. And so, in a way, um, one can say that my my very early interest in writing was place sparked by absence and wanting to find my story and when I could not find it trying to discover it and write it and and then later on in life continuing to look for that and as I got older I was able to find those spaces and books myself I was able to fill in the gaps you know the day in in fifth grade that I found Nikki Giovanni and James Baldwin I remember and it changed my life and then that led to my Angelou and Toni Morrison and you know and so very there was still that kind of narrative but then I remember and I think it was in 
98, maybe my senior year of high school, that Zadie Smith's white teeth came out. And, and that was revolutionary for me because here was the narrative of blackness that was outside that, that stereotypical American narrative. Here was a woman talking about being directly from an African country. You know, she was in Britain, so she was writing from that experience of, of being a, a British subject. And, but she was looking at the immigrant experience. She wasn't just looking at blackness. She also had, you know, Indian characters in, in that novel who had come from the kind of colonial experience of the Indian state. And I did not know how to articulate it. It was my first formative experience of reckoning with the global African diaspora and having somebody articulate that in a written form. In our literary work, in our work that wasn't just so vibrant in those subjects, but so vibrant in the telling. You know, Sadie Smith is such a wonderful literary talent with her prose and the way it left off the page. And plus, it was the coming-of-age story of a young girl. You know, how lucky could I get? So, <laughs> so Sadie Smith really, she was a light. And then I was able to seek out other writers of that ilk, you know, Helen Oyayemi, um, uh, Warsan Shire later, and all the wonderful, uh, my contemporary African, African and Afro-European and African woman poets, um, you know, and then that led to studying and Nubi Wapiongo, and Chinua Achebe, and Wale Soyinka, and Miriam Abad, Luchina Shede, and all these, you know, these voices that... Not one I had experienced in 12 years of education, uh, which is very sad. But uh, that's also, I suppose, why I still have one foot in academia as a professor because of that. Uh, Toni Morrison says, write the book that if nobody has written the book you want to read, you have to write that book, to paraphrase her very loosely. But I think of it as, you know, if nobody is teaching that subject or writing or writing that space, you have to teach that subject. And so for for that little girl who for 12 years of of education in public schools could not was not given any any narrative of the global African diaspora or Africanness. And I couldn't not find any of those classes in college as an undergraduate either. I remember that's why I still you know teach the teach in the academia. Right now I'm teaching African lit and, you know, poetry and various writing classes, but I make a very concerted effort to ground my class in diversity of form, of, of background, of representation on every level, whether it be race, class, gender, um, sexual orientation, regionality, because it's important to have own voices and to have representation and to have, uh, that, have that dialogue. So to get back to the very beginning of your question, what I find surprising, those preconceptions of blackness, because there is no, because that story is not told, people are not taught it, they don't know it. And if you don't seek it out like I did, you don't have any understanding that, that different narratives of blackness exist. When I tell my students that of the, you know, over 10 million slaves brought from the African continent to, um, to the Americas, you know, 11 million of them went to Central and South America and only a couple hundred thousand came to America, they're stunned. Now it's very compelling to have South American and Central American authors like Luno Diaz or Vanessa Martir reckoning with their blackness, their legacy of blackness, and owning that in a way that Central and South America have not, because there's a very, um, again, there's that 
that crime of anti-blackness that is on a global scale. If you look at the severe colorism in Brazil, for example, it's just it's a it's a case in point with the violence towards darker skinned peoples or the, you know, the formation of Haiti and Dominican Republic is that same conversation of not wanting darker skinned people there and wanting the kind of lighter skinned um, Spanish speaking people. So that kind of white supremacist racial structure hierarchy you see all over the world internalized and Colonialism was a big part of propagating that, um, and we still have that mentality today. For example, I, I come back to Ngugi Wathiango's text, Decolonizing the Mind, and how do you get past that, where you, that how do you unimprison a mind that's been taught to believe that everything about it is wrong and that only a kind of white Western supremacist structure is, is right, if you will. How do you deconstruct that, interrogate that? empower and move past that that kind of brainwashing and Stockholm syndrome. And so that's that's part of why this inter- this interrogation that I'm doing is to to allow those voices to come to light. You know, I remember being very excited at by movies like Bell, which shine a light on these narratives that have been hidden, or projects like the Black Victorians, which look at a compendium of of photographs of blacks in the Victorian era and why that's necessary to reclaim uh, people who have been lost in the shadows. And I see this work being done not just in ethics I use of blackness like I am doing, but in gender, for example, uh, as we look and reclaim the work done by women that's been silenced in various social justice movements like the the Black Rights Movement from 1920-1960. There's a really lovely book coming out that unearths the, the work of women in that movement that have been silenced. And so it's very compelling. It's very interesting. And I am excited that I'm able to do this work, but it's in line with my creative preoccupations of research and that hopefully it will it will do something good and in the world. It's fascinating to hear you talk about it. Like, I'm just, I'm sort of just loving hearing everything you're saying. And it's very illuminating for me to hear all these different, different paths you can go down to, to educate yourself and uh, maybe buck some preconceived notions about what we know about XYZ narratives throughout uh, the, in the Western hemisphere and even into the Eastern hemisphere. Um, Where might you, I mean, you rattled off a, a, a litany of wonderful writers. And uh, I wonder what might be a, a good starting point for people who want to educate themselves more on this, uh, the experiences you're, you're, you're talking about. I think there's two ways to go about it. You can start um, with in the beginning, if you will, whatever you determine the beginning chronologically and start from the past, or you can start from the present. And I like to start from where we are now. I'm, I was very fortunate to come across Dr. Michelle Wright's work on blackness and epiphenomenal time and talking about how the linear narrative is still a kind of convention that privileges Western and, and, and whiteness because it starts with colonialism. It starts with the the arrival of whites into into Africa, and that's where the narrative starts. For example, a lot of African literature, the way it is taught, and and 
where you start the narrative matters. If you start the narrative talk, um, using whiteness to validate blackness, it's, you're telling the same story. You're telling the same broken narrative. Um, if you start before that, if you start with the African oral traditions, you know, you're starting a different place with a different consciousness of, of Africa as an empowered, independent, individual continent of sovereign nations and dealing with them in that way. Or you can start in the present with, which is where I like to start because it's vibrant and visceral and it's, has those questions that are lingering throughout time, but we can access them and attach them. And I like to start in the present because it's the most access that any marginalized group has had in the Western world to articulate their stories and in, in a way that their stories are not um, taken from them and, and made into something they're not. So if you start looking at all the work that's being done now with, you know, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, of course, is a lovely voice, both for her nonfiction, We Should All Be Feminists, The Danger of a Single Story, and her 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 fiction. I teach Americana in well, my women's lit classes and African lit classes for that reason. It talks about this global question of blackness as we see um, black people in in Nigeria, we see Black people in America, we see Black people in France, we see Black people in England, and, and as they have a conversation, a very uncomfortable conversation about these many spaces of the diaspora and and what that means and what we mean to each other. And I think it's important to, to reckon with that multiplicity, also talking about gender and class, if you will. And, you know, Helen Oyoyemi is a great author to start with that way. Chinalok Paranta, who I love because, you know, she is... Uh, a young Nigerian-American author, but she's also, you know, uh, I guess the face of, of, of queer African writers because she's an out lesbian. And it's still a punishable crime by death to be to be um, homosexual in Nigeria. And so her voice would have been a voice that would have been silenced, you know, 50, 100 years ago, just because of that, that triple marginalization. Mm. So I really like to start in the present because you have, have space for all these voices, you know, and you can have these conversations and then take these questions of language, identity, home, representation, marginalization, um, colonialism, white supremacy, global blackness, the diaspora, what is refugee, what is immigration, what does it mean to be in this liminal space of duality where you are, where you are more than one thing, and, and and travel with those throughout time and see how those questions worked, you know, um, in the 1960s with the with the formation of post-colonial African literature, you know, with Rungugi Wathiango and Solink Soyenga. And um, you can travel, you know, uh, beyond that and look at the African oral traditions and fables and, and parables that were told for hundreds and hundreds of years through the griots and how that cultural tradition both told the the stories the fictional stories um the history and genealogy and also told the cultural parables and the values and kept the language alive and how that's so present if you will and i like to do it that way and i think that the concept of epiphenomenal time where time is circular and you simply pick the most relevant and um important 
moment to start and then travel on the timeline backwards and forwards is a way to empower Blackness and empower other marginalized voices, again, that have been silenced and would not have had any representation uh, before uh, now. Hmm. What are some common questions that you find that your students who are maybe looking to knock down some of these walls in, the, in, the, in their own mind and those preconceptions you talk about, what are some of those common questions that you're, you find your students asking you? And then how do you sort of, you know, push them in, in the right directions and educate them thoroughly? Very interesting because my African literature class just finished watching Half of a Yellow Sun yesterday and we were having a our group discussion and I had asked them, you know, what are some of the questions you have, what are some of your main ideas, and what are some moments of fascination that you have. And over and over, many of them said, you know, that we didn't know this happened. They didn't know anything about Nigerian history, that they didn't know that, that they didn't know about the Nigerian Biafran War in 1967 to 1970, that they didn't know about um, the, the coup before that and the coup before that, that they didn't know about the, what colonialism was that they didn't know that colonialism was linked to slavery and, and, and why that was very purposeful and specific. And it wasn't just the, the taking of resources of land and diamonds and oil and coltan and, and, and ivory, but it was the imprisonment of the mind because to take somebody's country and resources, you have to make them believe that they're less than you and that, you know, that there are documents by British parliaments in you know the, the 19th century saying uh, we travel through Africa and it's a wonderful, vibrant, peaceful place. What can we do to break down this continent so that we can take it over? And it was a very specific laid out plan of domination and control and destruction. And that therefore the severe and complete and sudden withdrawal in the 1950s and 1960s after granting all these um, manufactured African states independence was also deliberate because they could have stayed these European colonial powers and made sure that the transition of power would have been more stable and safe. But instead, after coming in and putting these these sovereign nations into artificial boundaries where you have tribes that are not anywhere have nothing in common are then put into these nations and then ruling them for for a century or so and and completely disempowering the native peoples and putting them into a state of serfdom and imprisoning their minds and to, and to believe that they're less than then completely withdrawing and saying see ya you take it over for yourselves and so of course there would be instability of course there would be warring factions of course you know there would be this violence as these leaders who have been trained with the British military then do what they were told. They're not functioning by their traditional African values of communality and respect. They're functioning by these alien Western values of domination and violence they've been taught, if you will. And so it's, it's a complete change and it's very purposeful. And the link between colonialism and slavery, the reason why colonialism, you know, heightened in the 19th century because of the Industrial Revolution in, in Europe 
of needing them to spread outward for resources and land and then why it then um, began to fade out post world wars as Europe hunkered down to rebuild and how that that 1960s independence movement was tied into the, the 60s moments in the West. And so making these global conversations as well as deconstructing the very specific destructive um, agenda of colonialism, the relationship of colonialism and slavery. Because again, uh, most African countries and communities are very communal based. And so when you had the theft of people starting as early as the 8th century AD, but really beginning in 1441 AD, and then as we know, reaching its heyday in the in the 17th century, we have this, this long history of people disappearing, both through slavery and then through the post-colonial uh, struggle of the, the emerging uh, nation state in, in that way. And of course, there is the fundamental preconception that everyone has that Africa is a country. And so breaking down that immediate preconception that Africa is not a country, it is a continent full of diverse countries, but those countries were created, as we know them now, as artificial boundaries by the European colonizing powers. And we have to remember that Africa before this looked completely different with its sovereign um, nation states composed of different tribes and ethnic groups. What was it early on in your life where you decide when you were starting to have these questions that you turned towards the arts, towards poetry, towards writing as a way of making sense of it versus maybe taking some other sort of tenure track? But but yeah, there are different paths to explore your curiosity. And, um, you know, you went down, you know, you're, you're a poet and a writer and a beautiful one at that beautiful writer. And, um, I wanted to know, like, what was that moment like when you decided to, to take your talents down that road? My parents always say I was reading before I could walk. I, I was always reading, um, thinking and thinking in my head. There were five kids in my family and I was the third, the middle one. And so, my two sisters, my older sisters are very loud and very, you know, very social people. And maybe it's, you know, that that middle child that then you're, you're watching and listening and thinking. And and we grew up in, in a house of silence, I should say, because, and I, I write about this in The Animal in the Yard, the essay in Creative Nonfiction, uh, because my parents had escaped from Idi Amin's uh, genocide in 1976. They, my dad was a professor, a Christian, a minister. Uh, uh, my mother was a nurse, and so they were who Idi and a Christian. They were who Idi Amin would target. They were at first he was he got rid of the British, and everybody was saying, "Yay, you know that." That's good, you know, Ugandans for Uganda. That's that's wonderful. But then he began. To, he got rid of, you know, anybody who was not Ugandan. Uh, the 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 Jews, the the Indians, the the other Asian groups, and that was a lot of the the middle class trade structure. So the economy began to be a little bit unstable. And so, of course, then what do all demigods and dictators do they must look for a scapegoat so then it was anybody who is ugandan who has western values so anybody who was christian or educated in a western university or teaching at the mccarrary university which is where my dad was teaching 
in the capital city of Kampala, you know, and and so Amin installed his son at the university next door to my parents to kind of keep so he could have a presence to spy on the university to see that they were not teaching anything that he would disapprove of. And he would periodically, you know, storm university and attack it at various times. And I remember one one massacre, my parents were supposed to be there and they were not there. And my dad says, you know, God saved them. And then people in my family began to disappear. My dad got somehow got word that they were next on the list. So so they just left in the night. They left everything. Um, I have written, you know, poems about this also in the Bani family. And they, they, they disappeared and went over the border to Kenya next door, where they were lucky to get a, a visa to England and then, you know, just a temporary one. And then somehow my dad was lucky to get a, a visa to the United States, a, a student visa, because for some, you know how long it, it takes to get accepted to university. For some, somehow he got accepted to the University of Minnesota in a matter of weeks and they offered him this scholarship and and his visa went through. And so they, they went to Minnesota. And again, he says it was an act of God. And then my, they, they, they did their degrees. My dad has PhD and settled into working in virology and the sciences. And then we moved to California. But, you know, but in America, my parents were not prepared for the racism they would experience in America against Black people. You know, I remember them in Minnesota, their neighbors throwing rocks through our windows, saying that we don't want those niggers here when I was about two or three years old. And the police always just parked on the corner watching our house, following my dad as he drove through the town to school and back. Um, the minister of the church we went to coming to our house, not wanting to sit down, not wanting to touch anything, just saying, you know, don't come back to our church. We don't want you here. You know, and so those were the things my parents experienced as their introduction to the United States. But at the same time, they were just so happy to be alive. And so, but they did not know how to handle American races, we didn't know how to navigate that thing because we were not part of that that lineage. We did not have that history. And so growing up in America, again, as I said before, there was no narrative at that time of anything else in terms of blackness. So you're going throughout the world, you're black, the region was black in America, and you're you're read as that thing. If you're not read as, oh, you're an African immigrant, or you're again a refugee with a different narrative of blackness, there's just that single story. And so I think growing up in America with that duality made me, as I said earlier, look for representations of the global African diaspora and not finding it was fueled my continual search. And, you know, I, I want to make clear here that I'm not negating that Black American experience. I think it is part of the global African diaspora and a very important narrative, a very important narrative, but it's not the only one, mm -hmm. is what I'm trying to say with that. So my parents did not talk about any of this. So these are all things that I have learned by hook and by crook of pulling teeth over 36 years, and mostly from talking to my my aunts or my sisters also now also pulling teeth with my parents, and, and then we pull our stories of, hey, I discovered this, or hey, I discovered this. Because what I realized now that I, that I didn't realize then is my parents had post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, living through colonial yeah. the, the rape 
and of your culture and and imprisonment of your mind and then living through a genocide of a dictator dictator who's trying to kill you you know living through that fear from 1971 to 1976 five years of never knowing when you're going if you're going to be killed you know of of massacres of of military presence everywhere of armed forces of coups of violence it's it's terrifying. So they did not talk about it. I would always ask questions because I was looking, because I wanted to know. And they would always just say, we can't talk about it. No, no, no. And so that, I, I suppose, fueled my curiosity because if I, I was searching, I would search for it everywhere and wanting, and then writing, trying to write that narrative, to understand it, to articulate it, to remember it. I think that's why rather than writing a full-length prose memoir, ended up writing that story in a collection of poems, The Body Family, because it was, you know, these fragments that I overheard or discovered or unearthed, rather than a sustained, continuous narrative. And so the the most sustained prose narrative that I have written about it is The Animal in the Yard, which she published in Creative Nonfiction, which intercuts that story, touches on it, but it's it's mostly about the present, set in the present with my father falling sick from a chronic illness and beginning the process of dying. And how do you deal with a, a parent dying? And as you look back at this life, this tremendous life that he had, and I'm in awe of my parents, you know, their strength and what they did to survive and to get us here. As I, every day as I get older and as I'm a parent now, you know, I just think about them in awe. Yeah, you, you touched upon something I just wanted to ask you, like given the experience that they that they had, like having that, the one, the like you were talking about all these different narratives. They were, they had one that, that they were able to escape and then parachute into a, a completely different one and then have to deal with an entirely different experience that they've landed in the middle of. And I you can totally understand their unwillingness to want to talk about any of it because it, it yeah. was so traumatic. And, um, and you were just talking about how, how you, how you admire their strength. And I wonder like, how do you draw inspiration from, from them, from their experience, and it's sort of a, apply that and overlay it to your own life as you're going forward and educating people, uh, readerships and students. Oh, my goodness. I think this is something that uh, all children of immigrants can reckon with, especially mm-hmm. children of refugees, where it's like your parents move the entire world. What are you going to do with your one wild life? As Mary Oliver says, if your parents, you know, did so much and wondering, I'm older than they were now, you know, and thinking that my dad was in his early twenties. He was the head of the family. He had my, my, my older sister was born already. And my mom, he had two dependents, you know, and, and it was on him too. And how do you, raising a child is hard enough, you know, being married and and making a relationship work viably, respectfully, honoring both people's humanity is hard enough and doing you know doing both of those things while under fear for your life and your children's life you know now my son is five now and and just that immediate moment when he's born and you just realize you will do anything anything to make sure this child 
gets and has what they need. And on that basic level, it was doing anything to make sure that 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 his his child, his children would stay alive and you find the strength to do it. And and so I I look at them and I'm I'm inspired whenever I feel like things are difficult or or um, perhaps impossible when I when I experience microaggressions or macroaggressions or racism or gender or both. I think my parents, you know, they did so much with so little and when what they were dealing with not just genocide and escape and starting a brand new life in a brand new country, but they dealt with racism on an entirely different level than I do. And I, I think it's pretty bad what I deal with. And so when I think about whenever I, I, I feel overwhelmed by, you know, a racist interaction I had with somebody or a sexist interaction I had, I remember, you know, the strength of our, our forebearers, both in this country and that tremendously awful history and, and, and my parents' story. And I think, you know, I can do this. I have to do this. I, I, they inspire me to, to do what I think I cannot do, to be the best version of myself. And at the same time, though, you, you hear, um, I have a poem, Judges, where I talk about my father and his when he went to school, he, you know, he had to wake up at 5 a.m. and work in the farm and then walk two miles to school and then, you know, work at school all day and do their homework. And they had to write with sticks in the dirt and then walk back and fetch the water and and farm and, you know, and hunt the animals for food. Because my parents, my dad grew up on a, on a farm in, in Uganda and that that was his life. And and. And working so hard because there's only one chance, you know, only really the missionaries would only sponsor one one student to go to and pay his school fees to go to high school. And then, you know, he would sell chapati on the road to earn money for his school fees and, you know, to pay for, for college. So at the same time, though, they think we did that. So so you can do it, too. Mm. You know, and so there's this, there's this expectation of greatness and success because you're in America, the land of opportunity, and they did so much for so little. And I think that, that however, with children of immigrants and, and their parents, there's this disconnect of it's a completely different culture. And what it took to succeed in Uganda and those lessons he learned to succeed, some of them are applicable, but there are certain lessons that I didn't learn about how to succeed in America because they didn't know them. And it's those lessons that one needs to succeed, those American cultural capital lessons of, for example, knowing to talk to the dean of your department so that they can see you and, and get face value with you so that if they have awards, they'll nominate you for them, knowing that you need to do an unpaid internship to then apply for a job at the company. But of course, one cannot do the unpaid internship because one needs to work. But, you know, so, so you know, knowing to talk to your professors, knowing what office hours are, knowing the importance of, a credit score that's more important perhaps than straight A's in America mm-hmm. and you know, which is what you know. So these things of cultural capital that are very specific to thinking American society, those were the things that they couldn't teach us, that we bumbled around learning on our own through friends and and mistakes. I was lucky in that I went to a, an elite primary uh, white institution, Northwestern and then NYU. So so I was and because I'm a watcher as a writer, you're a watcher. And so I was able to watch my peers and model my behavior from them. That's how I learned a lot of these cultural capital things from being in the space with privileged 
white people who had this cultural capital, who had generations of going through this process, going to college, succeeding, and so forth. But at the same time, it was very difficult because I was the only Black student in my major at my university in 1998. And I was one of two in my grad program. So again, it's, and then you're, you're this high invisibility and invisibility and you have these stereotypes pushed on you and so forth. And, and you deal with uh, a lot of racism and the intersection of racism and sexism as, as a woman. I, I wrote an essay about that for Salon a while ago, talking about the experience of being a, a black woman at a primarily white elite institution. So, so, you know, but the corollary to that is I got the education I needed to get to do what I need to do. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here doing what I am. So it's a trade-off, really. I think the thing is, is as I look at how to prepare my son for that, is that to provide a safe space for him as he goes through that process, because now I know what it's going to be like, because I've been through that. And so I know how to help him navigate through American culture in a way that my parents could not help me. But they gave me life. Did you at any point feel a lot of pressure to live up to your the expectations of your parents? Always, always, and this is something that again I talk with my friends who are children of immigrants a lot. Where I where we ended up growing up um, when I was eight, we moved from Minnesota, which was a primarily white town. As you know, we moved to Arcadia, California, and we moved there in. I want to say the the early 90s, uh, it was about 90% white. And about two years later, it had become 90% Asian. Uh, we were growing up in a community of other people of color, which was nice. But what I don't think my parents realized was that they may have been people of color, but just as as they say, all skin folk ain't kin folk. And... Um, <laughs> And a lot of people of color internalize that white supremacist structure of anti-blackness, of believing that whiteness is the best, and then you are your value lays in how wet you are correspondingly. So this hierarchy of whiteness, and then Asian Americans as the lightest and most the quote-unquote model minority, and then you have um, Latino Latinos and then you have blackness and and that that the one commonality again is this global anti-blackness because this kind of white supremacist mentality is global now and and so it people a lot of people yet don't necessarily understand that you understand that if you're a person of color but a lot of times it's white versus poc and and what the animal in the lard begins to reckon with a little bit is, is that is that people of color can and are racist to other people of color because of internalizing that white supremacist structure and aspiring to whiteness as the ideal and doing whatever you can to throw each other under the bus to be adopted. And, and you see that today as various political parties try to splinter that, that power pack of people of color that elected President Obama and say, hey, wait a minute, you Asian Americans, like you're, you're actually kind of white. You come over here and be Republican and, and you, you know, you vote against 
you know, you know, affirmative action that helps black people is hurting you. And, and hey, you, you Latinas, you, you're actually pretty religious and conservative. Come over here and, and, you know, and hate on other people of color and, you know, play into our, our idea of white supremacy. And so you, you see it very clearly. You see how people are trying to use it. And as I have always said and realized from the moment I was a very young girl because I was growing up in all this and reckoning with all these questions. And the thing that was very clear was I had nobody to help me navigate this, to explain this to me or to make sense of it or to provide safety for me because my parents didn't know and couldn't get it and were terrified in silence. My sisters were in the same boat as me and we were just trying to figure it all out. You know, no other Africans really, except when we went, you know, these long drives to visit my parents' friends in Canada or various other parts of the country where there'd be pockets of other um, African refugees that they somehow knew. But for the most part, you know, we were in this milieu of absence of representation, silence, and this climate of global anti-Blackness that was very much tied into this single story of American Blackness. And so all these things were working together and really inspired me to to seek and write and make sense of this. So, I, you know, I think I wrote my first story when I was five. It was very bad. But my, my mom unearthed it and showed it to me the other day. And I was just like, oh, dear, why do you have this? But it was, you know, so it was trying that. And that was that was what made me want to be a writer because I was a young girl. And, of course, added on to that the gender thing because growing up in Southern California, there's Hollywood and there's this idealization of, of white, blonde, by zero beauty. And there's this also this very severe culture of um, of the the male gaze and male entitlement to female bodies. Um, if you will, their the violence towards that being catcalled and followed as a girl who was twelve. Very early on, I know I wanted to become a writer to speak about all these things and to work for social change and to give voices to people of color, to immigrants, to refugees, to women, to 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 black people and that was what fueled me and fueled my writing and my academic drive all the way to college. I remember so excited. Okay, I'm gonna major in English and I'm gonna you know, write and being really excited in my first class and being told by my white professors for the next four years, you can't write this. Nobody wants to read black stories. These won't sell, you know, nobody wants nigger stories, just all that stuff. What? And for the next years and eventually I began to believe it and so by the time I went got to grad school at NYU um to I believed it and but my thesis was had nothing to do with blackness my creative thesis was a retelling of the the Greek Persephone myth because I had been silenced and I had I had you know again begun gotten in prison that colonial mentality of you cannot engage with blackness and being successful. And, you know, as I, as I, so as I, my voice was lost and for the next few years, as I tried to write and publish, nothing happened in my career. And it wasn't until I, I came back to LA from New York and began to, you know, talk to my parents and work on the body family and write down these stories and imagine these stories about my family that, and that's when my career as a writer uh, took off. And it was very clear that you know, I needed to be in my own voice. And I think one of the revelatory moments was going to Vona, um, 
the Rare Voices workshop that Uno Diaz and Deanna Jones founded ages ago. And it's only for people of color. And it was so empowering. For the first time when I would create a writing workshop, I did not have to explain myself. For the first time, I wasn't the only Black person or the old, or one of two Black people. And it was just a completely safe space where I found my voice again. I've written about that too. <laughs> the need for a diverse MFA program, the need for diversity that's, that is safe for the people of color. Because right now, diversity is looked at as, oh, let's import some diversity to, to, to provide an, an, ex, an eye-opening experience for our 95% white population at this, at this institution. And and it's so it's safe for them, but not safe for the people of color. And so looking at how can it be safe for us is to have more of us. I never had a black teacher until grad school. I had read one black professor in my entire life. And I've I've probably been in school for about 20 years. Mm-hmm. 20 years of education. And so that's why I, I keep one foot in academia, because I know that just my being there means a lot to those students. And I have so many students, my, my, my students of color just flock to my office hours and send me emails just going, thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your perspective, which allows us to, allows questions to arise and leads discussions and raises viewpoints and the text that you choose. And so, you know, it's, it's very important. And looking at that, I really think it's important to look at how do you make diversity safe for the diverse people? Is, is something that institutions really need to think about, if you will. And so getting back to, I want to get back to something else you asked me when you asked me why did I become a writer. And I worked at the Arcadia Public Library for four years in shelving books. And after four years of that, I realized something. I realized that you spend the majority of your life doing your job. And I was the kind of person I wanted to have a job that I enjoyed and that fulfilled me. And that wasn't something that was a complete disconnect to my life or that was draining my life or that I felt was something that was not in line with my values and passions because I would write no matter what, mm-hmm. you know, I could. And now I see that I can best serve, you know, the interests of advocating for uh, women's rights and gender equality and ending rape culture and, and rights of people of color and, and rights for all people through my writing, you know, it can reach a lot more people than, than uh, other work I could do. I think everybody has their own race to run and has their own um, specific talents that they're given. And I am a writer. I'm an antisocial recluse. I am not a lawyer in that way. Somebody who wants to get out and be a politician and, and lead. In that. That's my older sister. You know, um, I am the one who's very happy to sit in my room for eight hours with my computer and set it out in the world and have a conversation with people that way and and feel like when 27 people have shared an article I've written that hopefully and they're commenting about how this is something this is what their entire life story or this is something that resonates with them or makes them think or or you know opens them up to an idea that they hadn't thought about that makes them a little bit closer to a world of social justice and equality for all that's my contribution and what was what was that like when you were when you were finally 
when you were finally allowed to embrace your own voice as a writer, you know, when you were at that at that uh, th- that conference or that collective of people of color, and you were finally allowed to just be yourself. Did you find that when you were writing at that point and from that space that you just couldn't stop? Like it was just, it was like a flood. Yeah. Um, writing has always been a flood to me, no matter what I'm writing. Um, I can get involved. And, um, you know, I think when I was in, when I was in New York, um, I wrote a novel and two short story collections and some, which will never see the light of day. I, you know, I realized that what I really need to be writing was poetry and essays. Um, but but exactly, it's it's a it's a flood. I love what Pablo Picasso says about creativity: was it's about you're filling yourself up and emptying yourself. And artists are doing that constantly. And as you go through the world, you're filling yourself up and emptying yourself. And I had at that point in time, especially you know, just a lifetime of of stories that had been silenced, and that the space gave me permission to remember why I wanted to be a writer, remember what my purpose here was and, and to do it. And so I've been doing it ever since um, then. I think on a, <laughs> I don't know how politically correct this is to say, but I think in a strange way, being at Villana made me realize for a brief moment what it's like to be white, specifically a white man in America, because your, your existence was completely normalized. You were never othered. You know, you from the moment you wake up to the moment you went to sleep, the world looked like you. I engaged with people who looked like me. I was taught by people who looked like me. I never saw somebody who didn't look like me. That was an experience I've never had in my entire life. And I think that's the difference between my parents and my sisters and I is that they grew up with their existence being normalized. They grew up where everybody was Black. And, and we grew up in spaces where we're the only black people. And I think that you cannot overemphasize the importance of having your existence simply validated on an everyday level for your entire life and normalized in that way. In, in your experience with, with uh, writing essay and poetry, um, I always love to dig into how a, a writer sets up a, a process by which they're able to get the work done. And, uh, and I would I'd extend the same question to you. Like, how do you engineer your days so you are writing and, and getting words done, whether they get published or not or, or, or whatever, but just so you're in that generative flow. So how do you set up your day so that you're, you're creating work that may or may not see the light of day? Well, one thing I will say is that I always have projects in various stages. I have projects I am writing. I have projects I am ideating and thinking about. I have projects I am editing. And of course, projects that are done and projects that are simply perfect on the very, very back burner, just waiting for time. Um, Before I was a mom, I would wake up around 5 or 6 a.m., do yoga for a couple hours, and that would um, then lead into my writing space and I'd write for eight hours if I didn't have to teach that day or I'd go teach and then come back and do yoga and write and then see friends and that was that was very simple uh, life so I was writing from anywhere four to eight hours a day after I had my son my life was simply divided into 
taking care of baby when he's awake and when he's asleep, just writing. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't sleep, I don't think, really for the first three and a half years of his life. <laughs> I was simply, when he was awake, I was with him and we'd go on play dates with his friends and, you know, just living life. And then when he went down to nap, I would write. And it was actually, and when he went to sleep and I would write, it was actually, I think, a really great discipline for a writer because if I had two hours to finish an essay to get to my editor, I needed to get that essay done into that two hour nap, you know? And so I know that everybody has a different experience of motherhood. Some mothers say that um, motherhood makes their careers perhaps less productive. Uh, But for me, um, as a writer, uh, that creative energy of motherhood was so, and is so inspiring to me. And the actual logistics, of you need to write as fast as you can as best as you can that first draft as clear as possible because you will not have the luxury of you know weeks of revisions or hours of revisions um, made me made my writing career really productive <laughs> and still makes it really productive now he's in you know preschool so I have a little bit more time you know during the day to write you know, so I don't have to write in those two hour smashed blocks or, but I still fight or at night, you know, that five hours rush at night before you would go to sleep at seven, I'd write from probably seven to one in the morning and then go to sleep from one to six and I'd wake up at six and, you know, the day would go begin all over again. That was my life for, for until uh, this year when we started preschool or last year when we started preschool. And so, but I still, you know, I still have those moments where, you have to follow the inspiration. And so you wake up in the middle of the night when you, you write, you write for a couple hours. I'm like, oh, wow, I woke up at midnight. It's now 6 a.m. and I've been writing for six hours and I can't go nap now because you have a life form to take care of or I have a class to go teach. So sometimes I am a bit um, delirious. Huh. <laughs> but I think, I think the thing is you still, you still, you have your writing process, which is whenever inspiration comes, you have to listen and write it down. I think the thing now is, having a discipline and to my writing process is I can write down the notes and then come back to it a day later or two days later and, and, you know, write for eight hours and finish the project. And I think when I was younger, it would be, I would have to do it right then and there. I felt the idea would be lost, but kind of training your, training your inspiration to work in a different way because life is a process of change and, um, we, our process changes as our stages in our life change. And I think it's important to recognize that life and art are not separate, that they feel each other, and that I want to be present in my life. And it's not, life is not a distraction from the art, but the life and everything about my life, my son, my students, my friends, my family, they don't distract from it and take away from my writing, but they feel my writing and give it energy and inspiration. Or how would you define your ambitions as an essayist and a poet? And maybe how have those changed over the years from maybe when you were in your 20s and in grad school into where you are now as a more visible writer? Like, how, you know, how have your ambitions yeah, evolved? I think I'm more patient now. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's less about other people. You know, when I was very young and... I think when we're very young, we are um, have an endless sense of self-confidence and self-rightness, and that gets lost as you go throughout the world. 
and then and then you find it in a different way as you get older with less arrogance and less and it's less about you're confident because you don't know anything but you're confident and and secure because you now know you now know things and can you repeat your question oh, oh yeah <laughs> it, it just it dealt with just uh how your how your ambitions might have changed like maybe oh. early on it was i don't know just get uh i did get visible to this degree and then maybe as you receive more validation you're like oh i can i can start reaching higher now i can start maybe going to some higher profile things because i do have the juice to do it and the rigor and the tenacity and work ethic if i just stick to it long enough like you said like patience you're more patient now so maybe if you're not in the new yorker this year you're like you know what i might be there in 10 years but i and, uh, and i'm cool with that so i wonder that's just kind of like the evolution of your ambition was kind of the crux of yeah. the question i think when you're really young i know you when you're like five or six my parents of course being the african parents or if you're gonna do something it has to be the best you know you must go to the best school the best thing is you must success excellence was expected you know it's like yeah. expected to get straight a's if you have an a minus why is there an a minus on your report card so of course it's like i want to be a writer my dad will then you must win the Pulitzer. So I think there were these expectations created by other people. And I believe in those expectations. And as I said, and then I think it's just a process of growing up where eventually uh, you begin to listen and understand and listen to your own voice versus other people's voices and defining what, what success looks like for you. I think for me as a writer, just realizing that you're always a writer, no matter if you're published or not no matter to what degree or not, no matter if you win awards or not. And yes, the awards and things, those are always fun and nice and they, you know, they, they stroke your ego and they, the money is nice and, and useful. But that, that writing is not about the business of writing. And writing is a business that one learns like everything else and continues, but that the writing is what sustains me, what gives me joy and I'll always do it no matter what. And to have patience with the, the evolution of of one's career and know that trusting yourself and trusting the work that you're doing rather than looking for external markers as validation. Audrey Lord tells us that you define yourself for yourself. And I think that I wish everybody would just read all Audrey Lord when they were really young because everything she says is is what I want to tell my students every day um, until, you know, what I've told myself for a long time. And I think it's, it's just that same process of learning to listen to yourself versus other voices and defining for yourself what is important to you and what values to you. And for me, that's, um, it's, it's not prizes, it's, or the reputation of this or that. It's, it's the work that I'm doing. Is it good work? And am I able to get out in the world? And I'm lucky that um, I've met editors I love and respect who I, who I'm, who get, my work homes in their pages and you know continue people continue to ask for my work and and the readership grows because of the work um it's about the work you know it, it's not about me it's not something i i chose i i kind of feel very lucky to have this talent and um it was a decision I made to nurture it and train it and create a discipline and rigor and, and use it and for a very specific purpose. For me, I think 
I remember at the, the the bottom level, I remember walking, taking a walk with my son. He was about mm, four months old. We were walking, we were living in Florida, West Hollywood in Hancock Park at that time. I was taking a walk and it was uh, right after the uh, Trayvon Martin killer, George Zimmerman, had not been arrested. My Twitter campaign had just gone full flight with the emergence of Black Lives Matter, and he'd finally been arrested, but um, was very clearly going to get off or just gotten off. And I, this this white guy on the corner looked at me and my three-year-old, three-month-old son, I was carrying him in a baby carry on my tummy, and he said to us, you know, go back to Compton, or I'm going to shoot you like they shot that Trayvon Martin. And and um, I personally, I've never been to Compton. I'm ashamed to say I grew up in LA, but I, I again, I'm an anti-social recluse, and I was very young when I was growing up there, and so I've never, I've never been to Compton. I should go. I would love to go. Um, but it was the violence, the anger, the rage, the emboldenment, the fact that you felt safe to say these things, and I think even now more so with our cultural climate of emboldening and accepting racism and sex and and rape culture and violence are certain to be those voices have even been more emboldened, sadly. But it was at that moment, you know, and I'd also just come from Vona and I was writing, um, you know, and had my voice and was, you know, fully reveling in my voice as a Black woman writer and not shying away from that. And I thought, fundamentally, you know, I'm writing to make a world where my son will be alive. You know, where my son will not be killed when he's 12, like Tamir Rice, because he's playing in the park, you know, where he won't be killed when he's seven, like Anna Jones, when the police raid a building looking for somebody else because they don't value the lives of people who live there and will come in with guns, where he won't be Jordan Davis or Trayvon Martin or Renisha McBride or, you know, on a fundamental level, it's not about prizes or publication or any of that for me. It's about putting these words on paper so that people who look like me won't be killed. You know, so that my son will grow up and be alive. And with every word I write, every poem I write, it's in service of of Black lives, of women's lives, of Black women's lives, people of color lives, of, of these children who deserve to be treated as people and not, and not future threats just because of the color of their skin and not being seen as a human being. So it's a different, it's a different conversation for me. On a, on a fundamental level, I think, an answer to your question as to why that noise doesn't matter. Where does your optimism lie? Because I hear in your voice, like, I, I, this is such a great positive energy amidst such uh, virulent negativity, like a backdrop of it. And I want, wonder, like, how do you stay so, uh, it sounds positive and optimistic. So, like, where does that come from? And how do you yeah, forge forge ahead and and, and and, and not get beaten down by it. Well, thank you for that. You know, I get tired and discouraged like everyone else, uh, but I don't stay there because I can't. I don't know if that's because of the name my parents gave me. I'm just hearing it all the time. My entire life has embedded something in me. Mm. Um, I think a little bit probably comes from my faith. I'm a, I'm a Christian, and so I, I have to believe in in God's plan and a fundamental um, love and hope, if you will, and to choose that love rather than to choose hate and violence. It's a choice every day. You can choose, you can choose rage that will kill you and it won't 
matter a whit to the person who's being racist or sexist or trying to kill you. You know, it just destroys you. Or you can you can choose life and you can choose love and and that's what I, I make that choice every day to to believe that that it matters, that life matters, that, that the work I'm doing matters. And I think that when I it also helps to surround that I've surrounded myself with a, a community, often a, a virtual community of, of writers and editors and other activists and thinkers and just you know, people with a social conscious, people who care, people who who want to make the world a better place, who won't be defeated because defeat is to give the people who believe in hate and violence and destruction of us all win to win. You know, if if you don't choose hope, the person who's trying to kill you wins. I choose light, so I choose hope, and I I believe that that there are enough people who do care enough about the lives of all humanity that we will continue to move in that direction to create a, a country and world that values all our humanity. And I, I'll do my part to make that happen. Hugs and high fives to all of those who made it to the end. Did you dig the show? I hope you did. Consider leaving an honest rating or for 60 seconds of your time, an honest review. Reviews help embolden and widen the community, help with visibility. We're building it here at CNFHQ and we want you to join in. Those reviews help with that visibility, like I said. If you leave a review, I'll offer up a free editing sesh for up to 2,000 words. You usually have to pay double for that in Vegas, Cotton. Also, I have a monthly newsletter where I send out my reading, documentary film, and podcast recommendations, as well as what you might have missed from the world of the creative nonfiction podcast, the one you're listening to right now. Lots are joining, so why don't you... Once a month, no spam, can't beat it. Thank you again for listening. Have a CNF and great week, friends. Bye.